Welcome to a special presentation of the 2017 Braden Grant Documentaries. In this portfolio show, we bring you stories from Stanford undergraduates who traveled last summer with microphone in hand to dive deeper into a topic of their choosing. Each year, the Stanford Storytelling Project awards a handful of students with a Braden Grant towards their summer research. This grant includes funds to help them reach the center of their proposed topic. We also include an audio recorder and microphone, but maybe, most importantly, mentorship. My name is Jake Warga, manager of the Braden Grant Program. Other mentors include Jenny March, Jackson Roach, and Sam Greenspan. This year's grantees include Jackie Botts, Ethan Chua, Claudia Hymack, Nia Hughes, Katie Lan, Alyssa Van, Bernard Pond, as well as Blair Hunter, Megan Califas, and Isaac Goldstein. The goal for students is to tell a story of their research and sound, to take the hand of a listener and guide us into a place we've never been, and often a place they've never been. The microphone has become a tool of inquiry. The produced podcast has become a unique space of understanding and often empathy. We stress to our students the need to translate their knowledge and experience for a listener, that sometimes the journey of their discovery is the story. To learn more or hear these following pieces again, please visit our website, storytelling.stanford.edu. Enjoy. Mount Zion Baptist Church is in a small, unincorporated community called Sam Branch, right outside of Dallas. I'm sitting towards the front of the church, surrounded by chatting families and children. Unlike many of the buildings in Sand Branch, the church is clean and well-maintained. It has white walls, a maroon carpet, and a screen at the front so that Pastor Keiki can project PowerPoint slides. Music drowns out the rattle of the ceiling fans. Most of the people at the service don't actually live in Sand Branch anymore but they used to, or their families used to. And they come back here every Sunday to join in prayer. It's also where people who live in Sand Branch often pick up cases of water. They haven't ever had running water. They lost their well water decades ago. But Pastor Kehi has faith that Sand Branch will survive. The human side said, well, just quit. But then you remind yourself, God, why did you bring me to Sand Branch? Of all the places. We have to have faith to move. I'm passing by one house that actually looks pretty well put together, like fairly new. Then right next to it is um, more of like a shack that seems to be falling Um, Sand Branch's few roads are lined with small houses, many in disrepair. I see horse stables and empty lots. There's something called the Community Garden of Sand Branch on my left, and actually it seems like it's empty. There are a couple of like white painted tires, but inside I don't see any flowers really. Dallas can be seen on the skyline, one of the wealthiest cities in the United States filled with fancy hotels and skyscrapers. And it's all in view of Sand Branch. It's opposite. I see a boat. 
um, in the middle of the garden. It looks like just like an abandoned boat with maybe a trash can on top of it. Today, only 80 people live here. The average age is around 70 because all of the families have left. Without water, Sand Branch is disappearing. But why do the people who remain refuse to leave? We used to get water out of this well. This was the best water. People used to come from Dallas down here to pump water in big gallon things and take them back down because that water was so good. I met Mary Nash's childhood home in Sand Branch. Nash is the president of the recently created Sand Branch Development and Water Supply Corporation. I met her at one of the meetings at Mount Zion. I'll never forget because she entered running down the aisle to greet the pastor, literally running with a big smile, wearing a striped colorful blouse. She's closer to 60 years old, but acts and looks 40. It started out as a four room. We had two beds and there was six kids. My brother-in-law lives here now, him and my sister. My sister passed away last year. It's, it's home. When Nash talks about the sand branch of the past, she paints it as a thriving community, brimming with children and over 500 people. And houses everywhere, everywhere. Everybody looked out for everybody. Everybody looked out for everybody's children, um, fed everybody's children, and if you got in trouble, you got in trouble at Miss Susie's house, and if you came home, your mom was gonna get you too. Nash points out a rusted hand pump next to her house. We used to pump water and tow it in the house and warm it up. The pump doesn't work anymore, but even if it did, Nash wouldn't be able to use it. We can't actually pinpoint when the water went bad, but when they built the waste management treatment place, it went bad. She's referring to a wastewater treatment plant built by the city of Dallas next to Sand Branch. Sand Branch's well water became contaminated in the 1980s. That's when they came and they tested the water and they said it was not, you know, good to drink. I talked to a lot of people who debate what caused the contamination. Personally, I think it was all, all, all of those swine farms they had down there. Yeah, but Hawkman's been here all of our lives. Uh, it didn't go bad until the waste treatment plant came along. But whatever the cause was, the residents of Sand Branch had to suddenly deal with not having safe well water. They've never had running water, so they started depending on bottled water. The community tried for years to get running water. There was always obstacles by people and, and things always stopped. Then came the relocation. In the early 2000s, a county commissioner named John Wiley Price came to Sand Branch to help. I embarked on a venture to try to bring water to the area. But he found a problem. Sand Branch is in a 100-year floodplain. That means the risk of flooding for a given year is 1%, a high enough chance that they had to follow floodplain regulations by FEMA. So when Price tried to bring water, he ended up discovering that most of Sand Branch's structures were in violation of these rules. FEMA told Dallas County they had to fix it. I needed to bring the rest of the community into compliance, or we were going to lose our flood insurance in Dallas County. Residents had a few options. Bring their houses into compliance, build a levee around the community, move their houses, or demolish their houses and leave. For people in Sand Branch, lifting their houses a certain number of feet to meet compliance or building a levee were impossible because they didn't have the money. So 
I embarked upon a relocation project. Instead of bringing water, Price had to kick people out. When they came in and made everybody uh, move out, it was devastating. The few houses that were exempt were the ones that were built before the floodplain regulations took effect. Nash's childhood home got to stay, but her sister wasn't so lucky. Like my sister had a trailer right there on that property right there, and we had to pack up everything and just go. At the end of the relocation, fewer than 100 people remained. After trying to bring water, a prospect filled with so much hope, little of Sand Branch was left. When I came, I, I had no clue about the background, the history, nor the, the flight of, of the community. It's hard to imagine a newcomer joining the community, even falling in love with it. About four years ago, Kehi heard that Sam Branch needed a pastor. They didn't know me. In order for them to trust me, I never preached to them. I went out and played dominoes with them. I went out and I sat on the porch with them. I dropped off water. Uh, we engaged in conversations. We became family, not a preacher. Through his conversations and research, Kehi learned about Sam Branch's history, stories that had faded away through time. Sam Branch was founded by former slaves who traveled from Louisiana in the late 1800s. Like most uh, free slaves, they moved to territory. They uh, became sharecroppers. They uh, wasn't able to go into town, so they kind of created a small uh, support system out here. Kehi learned about the settlers and about a slave cemetery next to Sand Branch. He started sharing his stories with residents. And that's when they started to realize, oh, wait, I, yeah, you're right, I forgot about the cemetery. Oh, wait a minute, yeah, my aunt's buried up there. Because we started engaging in meaningful conversations that transcended just water. He also discovered by talking to residents that... They didn't want water. They wanted jobs. Yet... He knew it's impossible to bring jobs to Sand Branch if the community doesn't first have water. I walked the street with our uh, senator down here in Sand Branch. I walked the street with the assistant secretary of agriculture down here. He started his efforts to bring water by reaching out to government agencies. I had the uh, director of FEMA down here. I had uh, the um, EPA director down here. But not everyone agrees that Sand Branch should get water. Everyone comes and wants to talk about Sand Branch. I'm like, what is there to talk about? John Wiley Price is a county commissioner who tried to bring water years ago, but ended up having to relocate people. Price is currently known as one of the most powerful politicians in Dallas, and one of the most controversial. When I interviewed him in his office, he'd recently been in court for charges of bribery and conspiracy. He was acquitted. You know, they've tried to make a political football out of it. Price is convinced that the fight for water is more for raising a political ruckus than anything else. Do you get the sense that they're going to kind of give up? No, I think somebody else is a, like I said, is a, is a, is a beneficiary, and they're continuing to utilize uh, the people in the, in, the, in the game of power. Who do you think is the primary beneficiary? <laughs> Well, you know, it, 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 it's just interesting to me. Uh, I've got a minister down there who, uh, uh, <laughs> who, I guess that's his congregation. He, he, 
And so I, you know, he, every time I hear, you know, he's the one raising funds. That minister he's talking about is Pastor Kehi. But to be clear, I found no evidence that Kehi was using any money for profit or that he had ulterior motives. He doesn't actually get paid. The work that he does to bring water to Sand Branch is strictly time that he volunteers. Kehi is a little more diplomatic about price. Uh, as I told one, one of our county commissioners, you're right. <clears throat> He's opposed to bringing water. I said, you're correct. That's your perception. That's your reality. I choose to say, yes, we can. Back in his office, Price pulls out a huge white binder filled with hundreds of pages. He says that everything in this binder, all documents about Sand Branch, is a whole lot of nothing. To bring water just to the community, not to do the connection to the home, <clears throat> was going to be in the neighborhood of a million and a half, three million dollars. The economics were basic. Relocate people, try to provide money, because you weren't going to be able to provide water. Since Sand Branch has never had running water, their homes weren't built to handle water pressure. So now, if people in Sand Branch want running water, many of them would have to build entirely new houses. Because the houses are so old, see, you know, that water couldn't, it couldn't stand it, it'd blow it <laughs> It would probably just explode, yes. Price also pointed out that establishing a good quality of life for Sand Branch would require a lot more than just water. According to one report in his binder, even before the water was contaminated, Sand Branch was deteriorating. In addition to not having water, it doesn't have trash pickup. Residents have to bring their trash outside of the community to dispose of it, or discreetly burn it. People started moving to urban areas like Dallas, even before the relocation. Right now, nobody can deny that Sand Branch needs a lot more than just water. Yet, people in Sand Branch told me you have to look beyond the economics, the straight numbers. Imagine you've lived in a small community your whole life. You know everyone around you. With the little money you make, you're sure that this is the best life you could have, the most calm, and peaceful. Would you want to leave? I think the whole community thinks they're neglected by the county. Many residents don't swallow the cost-effectiveness argument. I know what it is. What is it? Your skin's not white. Mm. Hell, if this was a white section, they'd have water running down here over your nose. Sam Branch's story isn't unique. It reflects larger trends of environmental injustices across the United States. It's becoming increasingly clear that low-income populations and minorities suffer disproportionately from hazards like contamination and waste. For a high-profile case, think of Flint, Michigan, a largely African-American low-income population. It made headlines for its contaminated, lead-tainted water. But cases are popping up all the time from inequalities in toxic waste sites to air quality. In San Branch, one thing that most people seem to agree on is that residents never had a legal voice in the past, and a legal voice is what's needed for change. Kehi is not a lawyer. San Branch needed someone who understood the way the system worked and could speak the government's language. But that's expensive. I was stunned that first day just stunned. 
Mark McPherson heard about Sand Branch through his Dallas church, which was volunteering to help deliver water coolers. My curiosity was just piqued when, when they, I heard for the first time that there was an area 17 miles outside of downtown Dallas that did not have running water, no sewer, and didn't have trash pickup. And I thought to myself, as an environmental lawyer, there's no way that can happen. And, and yet at the same time, you have nice, friendly, reasonably happy people down there. So while I was there that day, the pastor of the church, he was the community leader, Pastor Cahey, mentioned that uh, for the first time they were going to have heads of 10 different governmental agencies, boots on the ground in Sand Branch for the first time. McPherson knew that having 10 agencies meet in one place meant each was going to fight for its own interests. And all I saw were 10 red flags, 10 different ways this could go wrong. So McPherson went to the meeting. Sheer morbid curiosity got the best of me. And he decided, I cannot, I can't rest knowing that this, that this exists. To work pro bono for Sam Branch. He told Cahey, Y'all need your own voice. And I said, there's no way in the world that Sand Branch, anybody down there, could afford, come close to affording what they need. Um, I'm not the totality of what you need, but what I have, I will do for free. Mm -hmm. I'll just, let's just get this done. In the last few years, Sand Branch has formed a development and water supply corporation with President Mary Nash. They got a $30,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. God sent Mark to us, Mark McPherson, our attorney. They all see me down there. They know my truck. They know my cowboy hat. And they always wave at me, and, you know, they all know. Mm -hmm. Now there's lawyer Mark, and I'll pull in other friends and friendly colleagues and other experts as needed, and um, I'll twist their arm and get them to do it for free, too. Sam Branch even got an Environmental Justice Award from the Sierra Club. Without a doubt, they have a more powerful legal voice than they've ever had before. It's led by newcomers to Sand Branch, who the residents know and who they've seen making change, walking agencies through the streets and securing thousands of dollars. But is it Sand Branch's voice when newcomers are the ones calling for change? One resident, called Brother Hall, isn't sure. I sat with him outside his house one afternoon while he looked out across his lawn. The community needs to know what's happening, you know, even if it never developed. But there's other people, you go around, you hear about it, you go around and don't even live down here. They're down here at the meeting. How did they know about it? This is not the first time we've ever tried to get water down here. They work on it and work on it. You think you're halfway through, then you run into a roadblock somewhere. Then everything dies. In Sand Branch, under the lull of paperwork and bureaucracy, there's a flood of tensions and questions. Should their fate be decided by intangibles or economics? I've put 40 years of work in this place. It may not amount to anything to anybody else, but it means a lot to me. Who gets to speak for Sand Branch? And is it even possible for a poor community to have a voice that people listen to? Y'all need your own voice. We need to know something, but we're the last to know. Is it right to make it harder for Sand Branch to survive because it has a 1% risk of flooding each year? We were going to lose our flood insurance in Dallas County. Never flooded in Sand Branch. Never, ever flooded. 
and said, This is an ongoing debate, and people have been debating for decades. But whatever the answers are, people's lives go on. The residents will keep living there, the pastor will keep fighting, and something will happen to Sand Branch. So what could Sand Branch become? On the one hand, if Sand Branch doesn't get water, it would just fade away. On the other hand, if it does get water. Do you think that if you guys get water, people will come back? No, I don't think it, I know it. That's a dream of mine is to move back to Sandbrink. I probably wouldn't move back without the water, but I wouldn't move back. It's really pastoral down there. It's, a, it's no wonder to me that why they want to go back down there. It's so lush and green and beautiful. It's right there by the river. I have more days behind me than I have in front of me. But I, I know a lot of people that I, that I know that still own their land that want to come back to Sand Branch. I don't have to have no big mansion, just, just a nice, comfortable home where I can live out the rest of my life. The country life, but the good life. Even this beautiful, ideal picture of Sand Branch gets complicated. So now I try to flash forward, like fast forward, to what it'll be like if there's water and a normal trash truck running. And I think they probably would make it more modernized, kind of like downtown Dallas. Wow. People would move back. I can see the land getting cleared off and people, probably new people would come down. And I just pray that they don't destroy it. Because, you know, if, if somebody come down here and build a $200,000 house, that's going to mess it up for everybody else. It's a catch-22. Sand Branch needs water to survive long-term. The current residents can continue to live here, but they're old. Sand Branch needs water to attract new people to revive it. But if they get water... Buildings, apartments, you know, like how you see this big forest and then you come back by and they've cut down all the trees and there's skyscrapers there. That's kind of what I, I fear. With Sand Branch's proximity to a huge and rich city, what if it becomes gentrified? Maybe not filled with skyscrapers, but something closer to a suburb, like the ones that Sand Branch is surrounded by. Eventually, will the residents lose the peaceful, tight-knit community that they love? making it die out in another way? At the end of his sermon, Pastor Kehi projects pictures of past residents, current residents, families, community. Each new picture is greeted with laughs. laughs. 
or with the more watchful quiet. Everyone knows all the faces on the screen. Everybody, I want to try Bill and all of us today to keep this legacy alive. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project's Braden Grant podcast show. To hear any of these stories again or learn more about the program, visit us at storytelling.stanford.edu. Some names in this story have been changed, including all patient names. I'm sitting in the closet marked blood and medicine storage, but there's no blood or medicine in here, just me, three desks, two desktop computers, and so many binders. The binders stack up across the wall, each spine marked with the month in big block letters. I grab one, December 2014. Inside are plastic sleeves, overflowing with thick patient files. At the top it reads, Nazi Moja Hospital, Zanzibar, the largest public hospital in Zanzibar, an island off the coast of Tanzania. The island is technically a part of the country, but most people here seem to consider it pretty much independent. In the streets, there are posters of both the Tanzanian president and the Zanzibari president side by side. Dr. Tarek, one of the doctors in the maternity ward at Nazimoja, told me. Zanzibar is both, it's heaven and hell. It's this island, this tropical holiday island where people come for a lot of money because it's beautiful and people are really nice. At the same time, you have this abysmal injustice of uh, totally preventable deaths. Back in the blood and medicine storage closet, I look closer at the binder I'm reading. Every file documents a different maternal death. Right now, there's no digital system for the patient files. There are just huge boxes of paper and binders of reports. It's my job to type them up. All the reports have a summary page with information about the patient and why they died. Name, Fatma Abraham. Age, 32. Number of children, four. Cause of death, asphyxiation. Then under, contributing causes of death. There were nine things listed, mostly stuff having to do with how her treatment was handled, like what the staff did. This one was, always mark blood transfusions as urgent. Aren't all blood transfusions urgent? Attached to the file is the blood transfusion request sheet, which was clearly sent in, but the order was never filled. It sat waiting in limbo, while Fatma sat waiting for a standard procedure that could have saved her life. At the end of every report, there was a box marked, Time at which death was preventable. Every report had a time filled in. I start wandering around, trying to find the blood transfusion center to understand how things like this get delayed. Out in the ward, there are four rooms full of patients. Three women are in each bed, each twin bed, and there are mattresses on the floor as well, each with multiple women and their newborn babies. This is the newest ward in Nazimoja Hospital. It was redone recently with the help of some Dutch and Norwegian donors, so the building is cleaner than the rest, with wider walls and bigger spaces. I keep walking around. 
On the bottom floor, there are stacks of unused mattresses and fun animal murals for the kids. All the signs are in English, with translations in Swahili written below on duct tape. It has been quite very challenging with the new ward because very few staff. The more rooms you have, the more staff you need to take care of those patients in that room. Natasha is one of the doctors in the ward. Like she said, these new facilities haven't really made things much easier. It's actually harder to have four rooms of patients instead of one due to how understaffed they are. But here, what we do is we try to survive, I think. You try to, 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 to make sure that a disaster does not happen. Because when, no, it is, it, it, when something bad happens, you know that it can turn into a, a nightmare, that a woman can lose her life. Outside, I see patients pushed on gurneys over cobblestone on the way to the ICU. When they don't have gurneys available, I've been told patients who are pregnant and fully dilated sometimes have to walk between the buildings. It's been an hour since I began my quest to find where the blood is kept, and finally, I admit failure. Maybe it's not in the hospital, maybe it's not open, I can't really find a clear answer. But instead, I do find out where I can go to donate blood, so I take the afternoon and go there. 30 minutes on the Dala Dala, the public bus, and 15 minutes of asking people, Damu? Damu? Blood? Blood? until I finally arrive, more thanks to a stranger's kindness than to my very, very basic knowledge of Swahili. The sign reads in Swahili, Ketua Cha Huduma Za Damu Salama. Then in English, Blood Transfusion Center. Donate blood, save life. The process is fast, easy, and very organized. They wrap my forearm in gauze and give me animal cookies at the end. Now they have my blood, but I'm still not really sure where it goes. I get back on the Dala Dala and return to Stonetown, the historic center and most urban part of Zanzibar. Sit down at the Stonetown Cafe, where most of the expats and tourists tend to gather. I'm trying to get some food, restock on sugar now that the animal cookies have worn off. An hour and a half passes since I've ordered. A friend of mine laughs, pole pole. I ask her what that means. She says it's Swahili for slow, slow. You'll hear it a lot here. Everything has a bit of pole pole to it. The next day, I'm back in my closet, transcribing another report. Name, Leona Moore. Age, 21. Number of children, three. My stomach sank. She'd been hooked up to the machine administering medicine for a few hours, but no one realized the machine wasn't turned on. She died at 2.42 p.m. on a Wednesday. On the file, died is written in these huge cursive letters, two inches long. I imagine the doctor shading them in, slow and methodical, paused in the sudden quiet. The eye and died was dotted with a spiral. Under contributing causes of death, someone had typed lack of staff, lack of motivation. <laughs> I talked to some patients to try to see how they feel about the staff. I get some translation help from two girls my age who go to the State University of Zanzibar. Together, we step carefully between women on mattresses scattered on the floor. Most women we talk to mention improvements they want in the hospital. She suggests that there's a lack of beds, so the numbers of beds must be increased. A few are just thankful for their healthy babies. 
I was very happy because God planned me to have these two kids. But one says, don't ignore people in the hospital. They have to help them. Don't take like they're not in pain. They have to see these people are sick. Let's help them. She's absolutely right. Doctors should not ignore people. And yet... I have only one staff who is taking care of 80 mothers post-delivery. So can I go and blame her? Because in reality, one nurses and not less than 80 up to 100 mothers post-delivery, she, she can't provide quality care. Probably she can't. So she, will do, she, 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 she does what she's able to do. She's absolutely right. That's the head nurse, Nasra. The lack of nurses is one of the biggest problems with understaffing in the hospital. We talk briefly, but the closet door opens. It's time for the twice daily staff meeting. Doctors, nurses, surgeons, interns, there's rarely enough suits for everyone, but somehow we usually manage to all squeeze in. The interns present first, updating everyone on what has happened since they last checked in. C-sections near misses, successful births, the hospital has 30 to 50 births a day, so there are always updates. The interns joke a lot, eyes gleaming as they laugh and throw zingers interspersed among their reports. Dr. Tark sits in the front row. He came to Zanzibar about four years ago. He's the first and typically only person to call the interns out. He ends up running the meeting, ends up yelling almost every time, shouting and impassioned. People really listen, most take notes. Afterwards, I follow Tarek out, trying to insert myself into his very busy schedule. For the first time in Zanzibar, I saw a planner get pulled out. He wrote down our meeting time. Successfully scheduled, I'm penciled in for an hour in two weeks. I run into Nasser again. Every day she wears the same maroon scrubs and white face mask, her hair pulled back tight, her face animated as she talks. You are in the meetings, morning meeting. Dr. Tarek shouted, my server say yes. Yes, yes, but sometimes I say, what can I do? In reality, if you sit here and you work a day with only three midwives, you will see. Sometimes four mothers delivered at the same time. One, two, three, four. So you can see the one midwife starting to deliver this one. And another one, the head is there, take off the gloves, deliver another one. It does happen, even myself, it does happen. It takes a big toll on the nurses. So you can see how shocked these people they are, how tired, and how confused. Sometimes they're confused. Nasra is unbelievably good at her job. While I was there, she had to leave for a week, and they had two nurses fill in for her, knowing that no one else could handle her job alone. Everyone knows Nasra, and Nasra knows everyone. She tells me to go talk to Aisha. She's a doctor who's about to take a break from the hospital. She's going on maternity leave. I ask her if she's going to have her baby at Nazimoja. You know, for me, it's really easy to say yes. This is the problem here. If you are known, you are a staff, or you are a relative of a staff, then you will be taken care of very good. This is the problem, and it shouldn't be like that. It should be like that to every patient. Two weeks later, it's my meeting with Dr. Tarek. He's punctual. We meet and he finds an open room for us, turns on the ceiling fan for the heat, and we begin right on time. He's still mad about something he learned at staff meeting that day. I discovered this woman who is now just having her, her operation because she was neglected for three days. And maybe now, I will find out later, maybe she lost her interest. 
No, that makes me completely furious. These are the daily discoveries for doctors here, and it's a constant battle to not accept these tragedies as the norm. You have to still feel bad about it. The moment you feel like, ah, that's how it is, or these stupid things like this is Africa, this is the worst thing anyone can say, then you, then you are part of the problem. But still, you're confronted with these deep frustrations every day. The difficulty or the challenge or the problem, whatever you want to call it, is to, at the same time, live in a situation that is unacceptable, and not to accept it, but live in it. And, and that is not easy. And uh, some people are better at that than others. And even those who are, let's say, not so bad at it, have good days and bad days. And I certainly have bad days. <laughs> I also have good days, like this woman in ICU now. That's a good day. The mother in the ICU was a highlight of that day's meeting. She was struggling, but after they brought her baby to her, her health seemed to improve almost immediately. It's incredible. It's really incredible. Yesterday we thought she's going to die. She might not die. Dr. Tark talks fast, occasionally checking his flip phone to make sure he hasn't missed anything. He's in charge, but soon won't be. He's leaving at the end of the year. Things don't move fast enough. But he's the first person I've talked to who has ideas why. The pace of change is scandalously slow. One of the reasons why it's so bad is because this injustice of poverty does something to people. And if you grow up being totally powerless, it's very, very hard for you to think, to imagine that you could change reality. You must believe that you can hold power to believe you can change anything. And that sense of powerlessness is not something that can be fixed quickly or easily. We cannot give, I cannot give power to nobody, but you can create space where somebody might find her voice. And the moment you say something, there's power in this. Always. Even if you ask me, can you please pass me the water? You're making them do something. In almost every case, they of course will say yes, and yet there's still that hurdle of voicing what you need and asking for it. If you feel totally powerless, you will not ask the doctor to pass you the water. Are you crazy? Who am I? You know, that kind of thing. thinking. People don't even ask many times, why did my baby die? Why did my wife die? Things like that. If we would provide health care, in such a way that it would enable our patients and their families to find a voice and to air the voice, that would, I think, lead to, to substantial uh, change. Every day in this hospital is a fight to keep people alive. And yet, at the same time, there's this other huge factor. There's this huge battle of empowerment and fairness and empathy. I believe very much that it's in the end, medicine, what we do here, is really not about biology, it's about justice. This is all about justice. Tarek and I talk for over an hour. By the end, I feel this weird combination of heaviness and energy. I want to do something, somehow, but I don't really know what I can do. I go back to do more work in the closet, but the door is locked. Johan has already left. 
Johan has the only key to the closet, so when she leaves, the staff room closes. She usually leaves around 3 p.m. Someone tells me just to come back tomorrow. Pole pole. I walk into Stonetown. Another day, another file, the same closet. Name, Rahima Louise. Age, 46. Number of children, 7. Immediate cause of death, organ failure. Underlying cause of death, preeclampsia. Preeclampsia is a really common problem in Nazimoja, a complication that comes up far too often. It's something that's addressed at the patient-by-patient level, but like most things, it's much harder to address at the higher level, to address the system that might contribute to it. Ask Dr. Tarek about it. It's terrible. It's really terrible. I mean, Paul Farmer, I'm, I'm sure you know about Paul Farmer. I actually didn't know about Paul Farmer, but I Googled him later, and yeah, he's like a super famous doctor and humanitarian. He says you need three things, staff, stuff, and systems, and then it will work. We don't have enough staff, we don't have enough stuff, and the system isn't working. And that is a big problem. But who's in charge of the system? I turn back to the head nurse, Nasra. So you don't, we don't have a power, authorized. Who has the power? In paper, they said me, mm. but in reality, them. <laughs> By them, she means the Ministry of Health. See, this is loosely how the system works. The funding for the hospital is controlled by the Ministry of Health, and the funding for the Ministry of Health is controlled by the central government, the government of Tanzania. It's a little hard for me to understand. I get the numbers of some officials from the Ministry of Health and start messaging them on WhatsApp. To my surprise, they respond. Um, My name is Omar Molim. I'm working with the Ministry of Health, Zanzibar. We meet in his office, a building about a five-minute walk from the hospital. He's nice and passionate and talks a lot about the intense work he's doing, the new educational pamphlets on health, the passing of a ban on smoking. I want to leave kind of legacy when I, when I live here because I, I know that I won't be here maybe for, for, for good. But then he starts telling me things I know aren't true, that there's a digital patient file system at Nazimoja. And uh, this is a very good system because uh, it provides uh, information So far, it has stopped because they have moved to another building and uh, there are issues with the internet. At the hospital, nobody has heard of anything like this ever being built. The closest I've heard is that these guys from Cuba came once and started hooking up some wires for a digital system. But it was never explained to the hospital staff what exactly what it was for or how to use it, and they left before ever finishing it. It's these weird, fall-through-the-cracks kind of problems. At every step of the system, people all have the same goal, and yet it doesn't come together. Things are missed. One doctor told me that almost every year the Ministry of Health reports a different number of maternal deaths than the hospital does. But it's always just a little bit off. Like they're not trying to cover anything up or mislead the public, but like they just didn't check that carefully. The doctor felt like they just didn't care enough to get it exactly right. This place, Sansibar, could have European uh, health statistics, but we don't. And that is a big surprise. Dr. Tark believes Zanzibar has the potential to be so much better. But the process of getting there is much too hard. And of course there are, there are purists who would say you shouldn't do that, let the system collapse, and then maybe a new system can come. In theory that sounds good, but not over dead bodies. Tark himself is leaving at the end of the year. He spent his whole career in low-resource hospital settings, but feels like the pace of change is too slow here for his liking. And I want to work somewhere on the same issues this injustice, where I can uh, put the same effort in with more results. 
On my last day, I say goodbye to everyone I know, and I feel this sense of heaviness. It sucks. I know more about what the problems are, but really have only learned that any solutions will be just as complicated. There's a playground outside the hospital that doubles as a waiting area. When I walk through it for the last time, this heaviness I feel is lightened for a moment by the sounds of kids making use of the playground. Stuck in the familiar limbo of waiting for visiting hours on the seesaws, they go up and down, back and forth, over and over, pole pole. This is the Stanford Storytelling Project's Brain Grant podcast show. To hear any of these stories again or learn more about the program, visit us at storytelling.stanford.edu. So I was about 15 when I wrote my first poem. I wrote about a train accident in which many black people died and the white train driver came up unscathed. My name is Diana Ferris. Um, I was born in 1953 in a most beautiful town called Worcester, a town surrounded by mountains. If, if, if the police, if the security police had to get a hold of those poems, I could have gone to jail. They could have, you know, labeled me as a communist for writing mm-hmm. about, about that because it was politically, uh, it was a political poem in a way. I grew up in the heart of the apartheid time. I present every Thursday between 1 and 2 a program that deals with um, all issues related to women. And then I also do the news, um, Afrikaans news. My name is Rachel Watson. I am. I was born in Bishop Lavis in uh, Cape Town. I am now a resident of Atlantis, 45 minutes outside of Cape Town. I am the manager at a community radio station called Radio Atlantis. I also present a music program on a Sunday. I love that program, it's my favorite. It's called The Quiet Storm. And it's only love music, jazz music, and it's a brilliant show because there you interact with, with people on a different, more um, soulful um, level. The radio station was started because we wanted to o- overthrow apartheid and needed a tool to communicate with the people. What is our future? cooperating in solving its special problem of race relations, so totally different from problems anywhere else in the world. Governing what is the heritage of white South Africa. The the, the indigenous people and the slaves mixed 
and um, that's where you know um, you really had the you know the people that they today call coloured. When the Population Registration Act in 1950, um, you know, um, determined the different race groups in South Africa, they um, they said a coloured is a person who is not white and who is not black. So, the double negative. When it comes to languages... Afrikaans is my mother tongue. Afrikaans is my birth language. It's a language that I spoke from my childhood. In fact, I taught myself English at the age of 30-odd. When I really am uh, upset, I write in Afrikaans. Because it's uh, the language that gives me the opportunity to express myself most fiercely and most honestly and most confidently. It's the language in which I can uh, dance, you know, or fight. We were taught a warped history that the European people made the language. But it's the language of the oppressor. When I fought in apartheid, we fought against the um, Afrikaans language. I will say they did it. They did use Afrikaans, you know, to oppress. But you cannot blame a language for what people did with it. And the history is, in fact, that the Khoi were living when the Dutch came, were living at the Cape. They had their language. The Dutch brought slaves here from many countries who had their languages, and they had to exist with one another in order to survive. And in order to survive, they had to be able to communicate with each other. And out of that effort to survive, a language came about. Those people that I call the white, white inservant youth especially, the Khoi and the slaves, they called the language Afrikaans. And they referred to themselves as Afrikaanders. It was when the, the English took over the Cape that there was a resistance because then they made English the official language, and uh, there was a resistance from um, the Boers, which were then a mixture of the Dutch, the Germans, and the French. And they refused to speak English as an official language and said, we have a language. And they took that Afrikaans and said it's their language, and they called themselves Afrikaners. Words taken. It wasn't words that they made. The word Afrikaans existed. The words Afrikaners existed.
what I do is with a poem. I sort of carry over information about the language, where it comes from, and I make the language, there's a lot of resistance against the language for what people did with it. Uh, I make the language uh, accessible to people, mm. accessible and lovable. I soften the hardness that people made around that language. Afrikaans, a versoening taal. Dit is, het hulle gesê, die taal van die onderdrukker. Dit kom, het hulle gesê. It is, they said, the language of the oppressor. They said it came from Europe. And it had, they said, a singular style, just one, in how to communicate. But from the womb of Africa she comes. From the mouths of the slaves, the, in, the indigenous, and the, and the Europeans. She plays on, 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 on drums and handmade guitars. She wears costumes of many colors, and she sings in a thousand voices. Today, she, her dance is not that brisk, but she embraces her sisters and she kisses reconciliatory on each cheek. She's got no qualms over the fight of identity because she knows she finds a way in the African Renaissance. And the Africa Renaissance finds her way. You know, when you make statements like that, language of the oppressor, that's just there when I'm going to get you. Because there were other people who, who received this, this language like mother's milk and who fought their freedom struggle in this language. Mm. And we cannot deny that language. It's in our genes. And that is the language that we speak on a radio. It's the language that you can speak. A woman come to the station and they tell their story. Some of them give their names, others don't give um, their names. I share my story, they share their stories, and together we find a resolve for other women out there who have the same problems. Here at the radio we say, speak the language that you are comfortable with. So when a story comes, the story will be told in Afrikaans. It's not the language that the white people has oppressed us with, completely different. So it's not the dictionary Afrikaans, it's not the dictionary English, it's called Afrikaans, but it's a mixture between the two. So Afrikaans for me is an important thing. And it's important because my people speak Afrikaans. There are many white people that has changed, but, you know, but there's a lot still who prefers to stay in that warped minds of theirs. I think the most important thing of the democracy is that people thought that the struggle will end when Nelson Mandela was released and when the ANC came into power. And then people didn't continue keeping their eye on the politics. So for me, the struggle is more intense than what it was then. 
we would have worked harder early on, but we were struggle weary. We were struggle. We were tired. We were tired, and we didn't realize that um, we are never really in the utopia. It's always deferred. We're always moving towards. So uh, there is no such thing as we will be in a perfect state. We, I realize that the struggle will continue. You've been listening to a compilation portfolio show of Braden Grant Storytelling Projects. A special thanks to the generous support of Bruce Braden and the entire team here at the Stanford Storytelling Project. To learn more or hear any of these pieces again, please visit our website, storytelling.stanford.edu.